It's good to be with you guys today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. If you brought a Bible, it's great. If not, we have the scriptures on the screen. We're in Luke chapter 23. Going to start in verse 39 here in just a second. <coughs> Excuse me. As Aaron told us, we're, um, by the way, that's Luke 23, 39. We're continuing our series, Aaron said, called The Seven Sayings of Jesus on the Cross, where we're looking at the very specific things Jesus says while he hung for six hours uh, at Calvary that day. While he was there, he said seven things. It's important to remember, church, that every single one of those things that he says has significance, it has importance. He's teaching through these seven things that he says during this critical time. I think Harlan made a great point last week when he preached. He said that when someone's dying and they're saying their last words, you, you listen to them. You listen to what they have to say. And, and um, we are, over the next few weeks, going to be listening to the dying words of Jesus now, obviously, Jesus is going to rise from the grave in three days, and he's going to have other things to say, but I want you to think about the significance of this moment that we're seeing in the scripture here, that God, God, the immortal, the great I am, the beginning, the end, God, the immortal, who came to us in the flesh, is dying. God is. God is dying. And as he is dying, he is saying a few things. And so since God, as he dies, is saying a few things, I think we ought to listen. And so last week, he looked at the first thing Jesus said. And he looked down at the very people who were crucifying him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And we learn from that that, that Jesus, even in the middle of him being unjustly murdered, right in the middle of it, even, even to a group of people that did not deserve it, he prayed and he poured out forgiveness on them. And we learned through that that you and I are able to forgive even when people don't deserve it, when they've wronged us because of the forgiveness we've received and because of the forgiveness we've been given and shown in Jesus Christ. And so what we're gonna see today is the second thing Jesus says on the cross where not only he forgives these people that were crucifying him, but he is also going to forgive this criminal that's hanging next to him. And we're going to learn through that that God is not only able to forgive these people who are doing these wrong against them, but God in his great love and his great forgiveness is able to forgive even the worst of sinners in the last moments of their life. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. Now, before we jump into the text here, I, no, I noticed something over the last week as I studied for this that, that I've never noticed before, and I've, and I've preached through these before, but I noticed this, that two of the seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross deal specifically with the subject of forgiveness. I've never, I've never noticed that, never thought about that. That's 28% if I'm doing my math right, and if I'm not, come tell me. I think it's 28%. That's a lot. I think about that. There are hundreds of things, hundreds of principles that Jesus taught during his time on earth during his ministry. And as he's dying, he could have reiterated, he could have retaught, he could have emphasized any of those 100 and something things that he talked about during his ministry. He could have, when he was on the cross, looked down and said, hey, you guys need to remember, don't store up treasures for yourself here on heaven, here on earth where moth and rust can destroy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. He could have re-spoke that and retaught that. He did not. 
He could have said, hey, I want you to know that, that the pursuit of righteousness, folks, is the most important thing you could ever do. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all that other stuff that you're going after so hard will be added under you. He could have taught that on the cross. He didn't. He could have said, hey, you know, y'all are murdering me right now. And I don't know if y'all remember, but I taught not to murder people. And, and I even took it a step beyond that. You're not even supposed to want to murder people. And y'all took it beyond that. And y'all aren't just wanting to, but y'all did. Y'all shouldn't do that. He could have taught that, but he didn't. What he did is two of the seven things he says deal specifically with the issue of forgiveness. So here's the question, why? Why would God intentionally do that? And I think here's the answer, because I know that God knows how deeply you and I struggle with the concept of forgiveness. I think God knows how deeply you and I struggle with just the idea and the concept of forgiveness, all right? And, and here's what I mean by that. One of the things that was so eye-opening to me after Ronnie Smith's murder in Libya was people's response on the internet to Anita's letter of forgiveness to Ronnie's killers. And for those of you that don't know, Anita, Ronnie's wife, wrote an open letter to Ronnie's killers and it made the news and, and was all over the place. And, and for lack of better words, I was dumbfounded by the response that she received specifically on the comments on the internet. If you wanna get fired up and get mad, go read them. Um, I, I guess I had in the back of my mind that that when she did this, that people would be profoundly moved. That, that this, this woman that offered forgiveness to these people who hadn't asked for it, who definitely didn't deserve it, um, that they would just be really moved by that beautiful picture of forgiveness. And, and some people were. Anderson Cooper on CNN, the guy who did the interview, he was blown away by this picture of forgiveness. But, but what was shocking to me was the response of the people on the articles on the internet. And I guess I shouldn't be shocked that people responding to articles on the internet are bitter and cynical. That shouldn't shock me, but it did because people, for lack of better words, <coughs> were appalled for the most part. They were appalled. They, uh, this idea that this woman would just so quickly and easily forgive, somebody that murdered her husband, it just simply did not register to them. It didn't register. It makes sense. Blew their mind how and why this woman could do that. And, and through the process, after I got over being angry at people being mean, I realized, look, the issue of forgiveness and the concept of forgiveness is absolutely foreign to a sinful heart. The, the idea of forgiveness is an alien concept to a fallen, sinful heart. Somebody that hasn't received the forgiveness, the unmerited forgiveness of Jesus has a much more difficult time understanding how in the world you could offer unmerited forgiveness to somebody else. And God knows that about us. He knows how difficult it would be for you and for me to forgive somebody when they've wronged us. It's hard, isn't it? God knew that. And, and two, I think God knows how difficult it would be for a lot of us, and I'm in this boat, to actually believe that God could forgive us because of how often we've wronged God. And so that's what God's doing. He's showing this beautiful picture of forgiveness over and over and over again. And um, in the last moments of Jesus' life, two of the seven, forgiveness, forgiveness. 
And so here's where we're at in the story. After giving the people who crucified, crucified him, we're going to see him have this interaction with these two thieves that are on the cross with him. One of them is going to be crucified to Jesus' left, and one of them is going to be crucified to Jesus' right. Mark tells us that. And the guy on the left that's being crucified on Jesus' left, he's going to encounter Jesus. He's lucid enough to, to be able to talk to Jesus. But what we're going to see is he's hanging there, he's dying, he's broken, he's bloody, he's got just a few minutes or hours left. We're going to watch him uh, hurl abuse at and reject. And that scripture says blaspheme against Jesus all the way to his dying breath. He's going to reject the only hope he has in the world next to him. This guy on the right, he's a criminal also. Some, some translations say thief, and he's also going to encounter Jesus on that day. But this guy, when he encounters Jesus with his dying breaths, he's going to confess his sin. He's going to confess his sin, and he's going to cry out for mercy to Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus forgive this guy and offer this guy, give this guy eternal life right there on the spot. And so let's, let's watch this scripture. Look at the scripture. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Let's look first at the reaction of the guy Jesus left when he encounters Jesus. Verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, and saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. So you've got this guy over here to Jesus left. And just like Jesus, in the exact position, he's got nails in his wrists. He's got nails in his feet. And he looks over at Jesus. And the scripture says that he hurled abuse at Jesus. Like the Greek verb right there is blasphemeo. It means to um, to hurl hatred or to give hatred or to spew venom at Jesus. Some of your translations, if you have the ESV, probably say that he railed upon Jesus. And so this guy's dying for crying out loud. A few minutes or hours left to live and he just rails against Jesus. Now, watch what he says next. He says, one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? So he looks at Jesus, and he's hurling abuse at him, and at some point in the hurling of abuse, he says, hey, Jesus, I thought you were the Christ. Now, the word Christ there is the word Messiah, the anointed one of God. All the Jewish people knew that there was a Messiah coming here. I want you to understand that that was not, listen carefully, that was not a statement of faith by the guy on the left. He is not believing into Jesus as the Messiah of God right here. The tone there in the original language is bitingly sarcastic. It's demeaning. He's saying, I thought you were the Christ. So the guy knew who Jesus said he was. And then he goes on, verse 39, he said, one of the criminals, the last thing he says, he says, we're hanging there, hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Now watch what he says last. He says, Jesus, save yourself. And us. Okay, this guy actually, it hit me this week, this guy actually asked Jesus to save him. He actually asked Jesus to save him. Now listen carefully here. Both of these guys, both of these guys are gonna cry out. We're gonna watch both of them cry out to Jesus to save them. But what you're gonna notice is that the condition of their hearts are radically different. When this guy cries out to Jesus to save him, there's no brokenness in his heart. There's no humility. There's no penitence over his sin. He just looks at Jesus as some guy that he can manipulate. 
to get him off the cross. Now let me ask you guys a question. Bible trivia here. This guy hurls abuse at Jesus. No humility, no penance over his sin. Commanding, demanding Jesus. Save us, save yourself. I thought you were the Messiah. How did Jesus respond to this question? How did Jesus respond to that guy right there? What did Jesus say to that guy that left? He said, absolutely nothing. Doesn't even respond to the guy. So much as we know the scripture doesn't even point out that he looked at him. I've always been fascinated by this guy. This guy, I've, I've always been fascinated by him because when you think about it, this guy right here won the lottery, if you think about it. This guy is dying, few moments to live, and he is being crucified next to the guy that created the wood that he's being crucified on. You would think, this guy is completely out of options. You would think that if there's anybody in the world, in the history of the world, that ought to be open to the gospel, it's this guy. If you would think, I mean, the, the scripture tells us the guy knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah of God. If there's anybody in the world that ought to just been like, hey, you say you're the Messiah, sign me up. I'm in. What do I got to do? He doesn't. Why? Why? Well, the scripture actually gives us a little bit of a clue. Don't turn there. I just want you to listen quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 118, 1 Corinthians 118, the Bible actually says there's going to be people that's going to be their response to Jesus, no matter what their situation is. 1 Corinthians 118, Paul says this. Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, but Paul says, to us who are being saved, it, that's the word of the cross, is the power of God. Now what that verse just said is that there's two kinds of people in this room. It's the kind of people that are perishing. And to those of us, those of you who are perishing, the word of the cross is going to be foolishness. It's the Greek word moronos. It's where we get our English word moronic. It's people that are going to hear this message that God created us and we sinned. And so he came in the flesh to this earth and lived a perfect life and died on a cross, paying the penalty of our sin, absorbing the wrath of God for us so that if we trust in him, we can have eternal life. There's going to be people, the Bible says, not me, the Bible says there's going to be people that are going to hear that and they're going to go, that is moronic. That's dumb. That's stupid. Um, so it shouldn't shock us, I guess. Shouldn't shock us when a guy is dying, and even with his dying breath, he still won't cry out for mercy. It shouldn't shock us when, because of the unmerited favor and grace and forgiveness that a woman received, that she is able to offer the unmerited grace and forgiveness to people who murdered her husband. It shouldn't shock us that people think that's ridiculous. Scripture says it's gonna happen, but the scripture also says that there's another kind of people. There's another group of people. And this is the group of people, the scripture says, that are being saved. 
They're in the process of being saved. And it says this, that when, when, these, when those of us um, that are being saved encounter the message of the cross, the Bible says that for us, it will be the power of God in our lives. Now, why, did, why, did he, why does he say that? Why does he say that it's going to be the power of God? Why didn't he say that for a lot of us, we're going to hear the message of the cross and we're not going to think it's dumb. We're going to think it's awesome. Why didn't he say that? He said, for, for those of us being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. What that means is this, is that for those of us in the room being saved, when we hear the message of the cross, when we hear the gospel, the power of God begins to work in us and we are able to believe it and we're able to grasp it. We're able to throw our lives and our attorneys upon it because God goes to work in our lives. It's not because we're smarter or godlier, it's because the power of God. Okay, and I've seen that lived out over and over and over again. There's people that I shared my faith with over and over and over. My granddad was like that. Every time I got around the God, sit him down and say, granddad, let's talk about Jesus. And I would share the gospel with him and he just thought it was dumb. And there's people that I would share the gospel with, I've shared the gospel with, and just in that moment, they're like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And they embrace it and throw their lives upon it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own life. Every, and I, again, this has nothing to do with me. I'm a sinner. I put my sin up against anybody in this room. But I'm telling you, man, every time I hear the gospel, there's something inside of me that screams out, that's the truth. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a worship service where some guy's preaching the clear gospel and I walk out of there saying, you know what? If I wasn't saved, I would have got saved just then. I've tried to run from Jesus. I've given it a good try a couple times. He won't let me go. He won't. You know what my favorite verse in the Bible is? Psalm 71, 17. It has nothing to do with my sermon. I'm going to tell you my favorite verse. Um, it's, uh, oh God, you have taught me from my youth and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I'm old and gray, oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. That's my favorite verse. You know my second favorite verse? This has to do with sermon. My second favorite verse is the one where Jesus is, is preaching and all these people are following him. Thousands of people are following him and, then, and they're following him because he's feeding them and they're following him because he's, he's, um, he's healing them. And then finally, Jesus just, because every time he'd walk around the Sea of Galilee, they'd follow him around. He'd walk around the Sea of Galilee. They'd follow him. He'd get on a boat. They'd follow him around the other side. And finally, he stops. And he looks at him and says, hey, you need to know something. Quit following me because I'm feeding you. Quit following me because I'm healing you. Unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can have no part of me. And the crowd said, what? You want us to do what? And they were out. And the whole crowd left them except the 12 disciples. Their mouths are standing open. They're like, dang, Jesus ran off 3,000 people with one sentence. And Jesus looks at them. He looks at them and says, y'all want to leave me too? And Peter said, where am I going to go? Because you alone have the words of life. I didn't come up with that conclusion, but that's where my heart is. I don't know where I'd go because Jesus alone has the words of life. You could come up to me and say, Matt, I'll give you a trillion dollars to quit believing in Jesus. I couldn't do it. Why? Why? 
Because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God in their lives. For whatever reason, it's grace and mercy. He poured out his power. And I believe, and I'm so thankful I do. But that's exactly what's going on here in this, in this story. This is what happens to this thief on Jesus' right. Watch how he responds. Luke 23, 40. In verse 40, it says, But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do, do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. All right, so this criminal, listen, this criminal on Jesus' right, same position as the first criminal. He's broken, he's bloody, he's dying, he's got a few minutes, a few hours to live, but his response is radically different. It's radically different. The condition of his heart here, something's going on with this guy over here that's radically different than the other guy. And it, man, I'm telling you what, the response of Jesus is gorgeous. Let's look at uh, verse 40. Let's watch what this guy says to cause Jesus to respond the way he does. And, and it says in verse 40, it says, he rebuked the other criminal. And he says, do you not even fear God? So that's the first thing he does. He looks at the criminal. He says, wait a minute. Do you not even fear God? And so that reveals something about this guy's heart here, that there was a fear of God in his heart. Church, for people that are being saved, there is going to be a godly, holy, righteous fear and amazement and awe of the Lord. It's one of the, one of the evidences that you're being saved is a fear of the Lord. I love what um, John Piper said as he preached on this text. He said that the criminal on the right is pointing out that the criminal on the left is like an ant standing at the base of Mount Everest, demanding that he flatten himself out so he can walk across it. And that's what people who are perishing do. They have no fear of God in their heart and they demand from God what they want. And so this guy on the right, this guy on the left, he goes, man, shut up. You don't even, in this moment, you don't even fear God. And he goes on in verse 41. Watch what he says next. And he says, and we indeed, watch this, this is critical. <clears throat> he says, and we indeed are suffering justly. We're suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our sins. Church, what did the guy just say? The guy just said, I'm a sinner. Do you not even fear God, Jesus? I'm a sinner. Because that's what people who are being saved do. They get it. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I deserve the cross. I am getting what I deserve. That's what people who are being saved do. They realize they're a sinner and they confess it. Watch the last thing this guy says. Or actually, it's not the last. Look at the next thing he says. He says, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. So he starts off. He says, for we are indeed suffering justly for receiving the, uh, what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. First thing we see, he has a fear of God in his heart. The second thing, he, he confesses that he's a sinner. The, the third thing he does is confesses, confesses that Jesus is not a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus, you are not. People that are being saved know that the only hope they have for righteousness is not found in what they've done, good or bad. It's found in the righteousness of Jesus. I'm getting what I deserve because I'm a sinner. Jesus, you've done nothing wrong. And the last thing he does, 
Last thing he does, verse 42. He says, as he was saying, watch what he does here. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's the last thing he does. He throws himself on the mercy of God. I have no hope, Jesus. You're the only hope I have. You're the king. Remember me when I enter into your kingdom. And unlike the first criminal that Jesus completely ignores, Jesus lifts up his head. He lifts up his head and says one of only seven things that he's going to say on the cross. And he looks at this guy and it says he said to him in verse 43, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Confesses Jesus is God, shows the fear of the Lord he has in his heart. He confesses that he's a sinner. He confesses that Jesus is not, and he cries out for Jesus to save him, and Jesus saves him. Now remember, church, at the beginning of this message, I said something. I said that the reason that God spends two of the seven sayings on the cross dealing with the issue of forgiveness, 28%, one, is because God knew how hard it would be for you to forgive other people, for me to forgive other people. And two, God, I think, did that because God knew how hard it would would be for a lot of us in this room to to believe that God would actually forgive us. And I know, I know because I'm one of them, of the people that I'm about to talk about. There's a lot of us in this room. One, we have the hardest time wrapping our minds around that God would just wipe clean somebody's slate. We We struggle with that. It just doesn't make sense. There's probably a lot of us in the room today that are not Christ followers. And the reason that you're not a Christ follower is not because you don't believe in God. It's because you don't believe that God could actually forgive somebody like you. There's probably even more of us in the room today that that are believers. We are Christ followers, but right now, so mired in sin... We're so stuck in the rut of our sin that we just, we're getting to that place where we think, man, God might be done with me. That I don't think God would offer forgiveness to a person that keeps failing like this. But listen, if there's any story in the whole Bible that teaches us that our salvation is by grace through faith, and it's not of works that anybody should boast. It is a gift of God. It's this one. This guy has absolutely no time to hop off the cross and go be obedient to Jesus. This guy has no time to hop off the cross and go live 50 years radically for the sake of the gospel. This guy with his dying breath just says, I'm a sinner, you're not, please have mercy on me. And the mercy of God came like a flood into this guy's life, if there's ever, ever, ever a story that shows us it's not based, your salvation not based on what you've done, haven't done, it is a gift of God, it is this one. And so I want to end today, and I'm I'm done here, I I want to end today with um, real, real fast, just very, very quickly, I want to just show you the thing that Jesus said and just unpack it in about two minutes, and then I'll give you an application, we'll be done today. But I want you to look at what Jesus says to this guy because it's, it's awesome. And we learn a lot of theology about heaven 
based on what Jesus said. I love what, what Jesus says here. And sometimes we get so blown away by the fact that God would just totally forgive this guy that we don't think about what he said. And the first thing I want you to notice that Jesus said, he said, truly I say to you, which means that what I'm about to say is true. And then he, and then he says, today, today. That's good news, folks. We learned some theology from that word today. We learned the theology that there's no purgatory. And you're not going to die and have to work some stuff out before you go to be with him or not be with him. Uh, There's no soul sleep. You're not going to go sleep for a while and wake up one day and go to heaven at that point. Scripture says today, today, that's why Paul says, when I am absent with the body, I will be present with the Lord. That's why, I mean, that's the whole point of what's going on here is Jesus is, is pointing out, and we can learn from it, that there's going to come a day <coughs> when you're, you're going to quit breathing, your heart's going to quit beating, and in that moment, on that day, you're going to wake up in the arms of Jesus. He says today. Now look at the next part. I'm going to read this and I'm going to ask you a question. He says, today, truly today, you will be with me in paradise. And I want you to look at those two statements there. You will be with me in paradise. And I just want to ask you a straightforward question. Don't shout it out or anything. But which one of those two statements are you more excited about? That Jesus said, you're going to be with me. Or Jesus saying, you're going to be with me in paradise. Because I don't know what paradise means. There's actually a lot of theological debate on what paradise means. But all I know is if the creator of heaven and earth says it's going to be paradise, sign me up, right? Amen? Sign me up for that. And I did a series a couple years ago on heaven and hell. And we talked about the fact that heaven actually is not, the Bible tells us this, one of the more underpreached theologies in, in Scripture. The heaven's not going to be this place where we float around in the clouds and play harps. And it's just that's not what, it, what it's going to be like. God actually creates a new earth, a new earth. And that's where we spend eternity. We're hanging out on the new earth. And that's going to be amazing. I mean, it's going to, there's going to be no sin. Think about that. You want to, like, have a good quiet time, just think about that sometime. And all the implications in relationships and work and junk because of sin, and that's all gone. Think about the food on the new earth, man. For crying out loud, it's going to be great. I, I, could, I, I could talk for weeks about this. It's going to be unbelievable, but I'm telling you, you know what the joy of heaven's going to be? The joy of heaven's going to be Jesus. That's what Paul says, that I count all this other stuff to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And I'm church, I'm telling you, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love this church, but nothing, nothing compares to me knowing Jesus. The joy of my life, hands down, has been knowing Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, the joy of heaven will be knowing Jesus forever. And if you're more excited about the paradise than you are the being with Jesus, I just, I just want, I want to say this kindly and softly. There's, there's something not right there if that's where you're at. Now, I'll end with this. There's a very simple question I want you to consider today. You got 
two thieves here dying on a cross. I want you to consider this throughout the course of your life, starting right now. You're going to respond to Jesus right now and for the rest of your life in one of these two ways. See, the question today is not, are you a criminal or are you a thief? Because the scripture says we're worse than criminals. We're worse than thieves, that all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death. And that if we are in our sin and not been redeemed by our sin, by the blood of Jesus on the cross, we're worse than criminals. We're enemies of God, the Bible says. And so the question is not, are you a thief? The question is not, are you a criminal? The question is, which thief are you? Which criminal are you? You're either a thief that, that to your dying breath will reject Jesus with your words or with your life, <clears throat> or you're a thief that with your dying breath will throw yourself upon the mercy of God. The question is not if you're a thief. The question is not if I'm a thief. The question is, which one of these thieves are we? Because, man, I'm telling you, if this is where you're at today, And this is where you stay. You might believe Jesus is the Messiah. You might want him to do some good stuff, but I'm telling you, man, if this is where you stay, where you reject him with your mouth and with your life, when you die, how Jesus responds to you is exactly how he responded to this guy. You're not going to say anything. But I want you to know if you're here today and you're afraid, you're like, man, I may be right here. I, I, I don't want you to walk out of here going, man, I may be right here. I want you to walk out of here remembering this guy right here. Because if there is breath in your lungs, if there is life in your body, you can cry out to Jesus. I'm a sinner. You're not. I need you to save me. And I don't care who you are or what you've done. These will be his words to you on your last day. Today, you will be with me in paradise. All right, let's pray. As your heads are bowed, I want you to listen to one last thing because we're gonna sing here in a second. We'll let you go. I don't want anybody coming out of here. I want you to hear this. If there is any part of you right now, any part of your heart that's saying, I want Jesus. I may be messing up like crazy. I may be sitting like crazy, but there's something stirring inside of you saying, I want Jesus. That is the power of God working in you. There is hope. If there's breath in your lungs, if there's life in your body, you cry out to Jesus. There is no sin you've ever committed or ever will co uh, commit that is greater than his love. So you cry out to him today. For those of you that are believers, the cross has been the power of God in your life. Let's stand in amazement today.
of Jesus the Nazarene. The wonder how he could love us, a sinner condemned, unclean. Let's sing to him. Jesus, how marvelous. How marvelous will my song will ever be. How marvelous is my Savior's love for me. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Looking forward to that day.